Apostle Paul received glowing reports of a growing church at the heart of the empire. The gospel had arrived in Rome. It was the spring of 58 AD. Paul was in the Greek city of Corinth when he heard of a female friend from the neighboring port of Sincrea. She was traveling to Rome, and Paul asked Phoebe if she would deliver his letter. You see, the apostle was headed to Jerusalem where danger awaited him, possibly even death. Paul thought that this letter might be his last opportunity to expound on the truths that God had given him. But what Paul thought was his final opportunity became his finest effort. For his letter to the Romans became his theological masterpiece. Almost every Bible doctrine finds its best defense and fullest explanation in Paul's letter to the Romans. Throughout the ages, this one book has single-handedly sparked revivals, incited revolutions, altered the history of nations, and transformed billions of lives. The great preacher John Chrysostom thought so highly of this letter that he read the book of Romans once a week for 18 years. Romans will be our focus for the next 10 weeks. The book begins, Paul. You see, the ancients started their letters the way we end them, with a signature. Since letters in Paul's day were written on scrolls, they put the signature first so you wouldn't have to unroll the scroll to identify its author. Paul introduces himself as Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, he could have identified himself in numerous ways, as a warrior of the faith, as an illustrious theologian, as a church planner, as a missionary to the world. Instead, he uses bondservant or love slave. The term harkens back to Exodus chapter 21. You see, in ancient Israel, if you couldn't pay your debt, you didn't file for bankruptcy. No, you worked off what you owed by becoming a slave to your creditor. And some debtors fared better in the house of a benevolent master than they did on their own. So much so that a slave might even choose to stay with their master even after the debt had been paid. And when that happened, the owner demonstrated the slave's loyalty by pressing the servant's ear against the doorpost of the house and then driving a sharp awl through his earlobe. The slave's pierced ear became a symbol of that servant's voluntary love and gratitude toward his master. And we have a similar relationship with Jesus. He has forgiven us of our debt of sin. Aren't you thankful? Hey, we owe him our all, don't we? A Christian is a love slave of Jesus. And and yet, once once you spend time in his house, once you live under Jesus' roof, you, you begin to experience his generosity and his grace. And you realize that, wow, life with Jesus is far better than I can do on my own. See, we start out serving out of obligation but we end up serving out of appreciation. We become love slaves of Jesus. And Paul was also called to be an apostle. The word means sent out. Paul was not just self-appointed. He was commissioned by God. You know, you can tell that about a preacher, whether he was sent or did he just went. Paul was called by God and sent out by God himself. 
Verse 1 also tells us that Paul was separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Paul was devoted to one message, the gospel of God, and God's gospel is all about his son Jesus. Notice here three truths Paul mentions about Jesus. He was revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. He was born God's ruler according to the lineage of King David, and he was resurrected by the power of God's Spirit. See, the case for Jesus as God's Messiah is airtight. He claimed to be the Lord of the universe and the Savior of the world through prophecy, through pedigree, and through power. And then verse 5, we're told, through him we have received grace. And here is the theme of the letter to the Romans. We have received grace. Grace is free. It's love that's on the house. You can't deserve it. You'll never earn it. It's God's love for us. You know, Paul was once a Jewish rabbi. He lived under the law and felt constant pressure to perform. But under grace, God didn't call Paul to try, just trust. Salvation was not me do, but he did. And God called Paul not to a responsibility. God was simply saying, respond to me. Once a young man fell in love with a wicked woman. This was a wicked woman. His mother disliked her, tried to break him up. But the man ignored his mom, and he moved in with this wicked woman. Well, one night, the vengeful gal, she got the fellow drunk. She demanded of him that he prove his love for her by killing his own mom, cutting out her heart, and bringing it back to her as a trophy. I told you she was wicked. Well, the young man, he stumbled into his mother's house with a butcher knife, stabbed her, carved out her heart. But as he staggered back through the streets with this prize in hand, he stumbled and fell, and he dropped his mom's heart. As legend goes, when he reached to pick up her bleeding heart, it spoke to him, my son, are you hurt? And this is how cruel you and I have been to Jesus. We stabbed the nails into his hands and feet. We broke his heart. And yet Jesus still speaks lovingly to each of us. He says, are we hurt? He cares about his children's hurts. This is grace. Grace is the father kissing the prodigal after coming home. Grace is Jesus saying to the adulteress, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Grace is his prayer on the cross Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Grace changed everything for Paul. Don't be surprised if this book changes you. And then verse 5, through him, that is Christ, we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Since grace is for every race, God secured Paul a visa to all nations, even Romans. In verse 7, he addresses them, To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. 
You know, erroneously throughout church history, saints have been thought of as special Christians, different Christians. You know, we view saints as the all-stars of the faith, the hall of famers, you might say. But not so. Saint simply means to set apart, to be dedicated. See, you either belong to Jesus or you don't. You're either his or you're not. You're either a saint or you're an ain't. And Paul greets these saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he says of the Romans in verse 8, First I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, that your faith is spoken of throughout the whole world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers making request if by some means, now at last, I may find a way in the will of God to come to you. This church was spoken of around the world, but Paul spoke of this church before God. He had never visited Rome. He wanted to, but he definitely prayed for this church diligently and consistently. According to Acts chapter 2 verse 10, Present in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost were a group of Jews from Rome. It could be that they were converted by Peter's sermon, filled with the Holy Spirit, and returned to Rome to start a church. Over the years, their church became famous, but not for its building or its pastor or its size. They became famous for its faith. You know, if our church becomes well known, I hope it's because of our faith. Paul wanted to visit the church at Rome. And he tells us why, verse 11. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift, so that you may be established, that is, that I may be encouraged together with you by the mutual faith, both of you and me. Now, folks usually flock to Rome for amusement. Rome hosted the Forum. Later, it was the site of the famous Colosseum. NASCAR fans could catch a chariot race at the Circus Maximus. But in the belly of this vast city, beneath all the glitz and glamour, were a small group of people, precious and important to God. And Paul wanted to visit Rome so he could build up these believers, to give to them and receive from them. And isn't this what the church is all about? See, the church is like a blood bank. Some days you come to donate and some days you need a transfusion. Paul wants to impart a spiritual gift to the church at Rome. And then verse 13, he says, Now I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that I often planned to come to you, but was hindered until now, that I might have some fruit among you also. Just as among the other Gentiles, I am a debtor both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to wise and to unwise." See, Paul owed God for his amazing grace, but his debt was made payable to his fellow man. Hey, the same applies to us. We thank Jesus for his grace by loving the folks he died to save. Here's Paul's reply to grace. So as much as is in me, I am ready to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. Eventually, Rome will fall to marauding bands of Goths and Vandals. But the real cause of Rome's demise was internal. You see, Rome became rich and spoiled and lusted for new amusements. 
Romans were lawless out of sheer boredom. Historian Tacitus writes of Rome's perverse appetite, the greater the infamy, the wilder the delight. Roman civilization fell victim to moral collapse. And here's how it happened. You see, the Romans lost respect for human life. Babies were viewed as an inconvenience, and they were left on the steps of the market to be sold as slaves. Marital fidelity became an unheard of virtue. Roman debutantes dated the years by the names of their husbands they had so many. Fourteen of the first 15 Roman emperors were so bored with the natural attraction for women that they sought perverse pleasures in homosexual acts. Rome even legitimized pedophilia with young boys. In fact, Rome was so debased, the wife of Caesar Claudius, the Empress Agrippina, would leave her palace at night and work in the brothels for the sake of sheer lust. You've heard of Skid Row? Well, welcome to Skid Row. And yet Paul wasn't intimidated. He was ready to preach the gospel in Rome. He was proud of the gospel. For this is what people in sin need. They need the gospel. The gospel is our hope. The gospel is the means by which God wants to forgive us, not condemn us. Paul was anxious to preach to the Romans the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in verse 16, he declares his confidence in its power. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. For the Jew first and also for the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. The gospel is the greatest change agent known to man. The truth of Jesus Christ, the truth that he died to forgive us and rose to live in us, transforms lives and changes communities. At the end of chapter 3, Paul is going to begin explaining the gospel and how it works in our lives. But first, he needs to convince us of our need You know, it's been said before the good news can be received, the bad news has to be believed. We don't sense a need for our Savior until we recognize our sin. And in the last half of chapter 1, Paul begins to dissect the downward spiral of Roman culture. He discusses how the Greco-Roman world suppressed the truth, even confused the truth, and transgressed God's truth. Well, Paul begins here in verse 18. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness. Verse 17 says that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God. But one day, heaven will reveal the wrath of God. Reject or ignore God's righteousness and you'll become subject to his wrath. Once a country church sat right next door to the farm of an avid atheist. And every Sunday morning, this atheist would rev up his tractor to drown out the pastor's message. Well, when his harvest yielded a bumper crop, he saw it as proof that God didn't exist. He bragged about his efforts. But I love the pastor's reply. He told him, he said, Sir, God does not settle all his accounts in the month of October. It may be now or it may be later. But a Christ-rejecting world will eventually taste the terrible wrath of the Almighty God. 
Paul says that God's wrath is against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Ungodliness is the rejection of God's authority. Unrighteousness is the rejection of God's standards. And unrighteousness leads to the suppression of God's truth. Four, if your intent is to defy God's commands, it's easier if you deny God exists. Whenever a student returns from college for the first time, and I hear that they've rejected their faith, here's what I want to ask them. When did you start sleeping with your girlfriend? Why? Because when you eliminate a higher authority, then you can justify your sin. Or you can rename it. You can call it liberation or self-expression. And that's what's happened today in Western society. In public schools, evolution is now the law of the land. It's hyped as fact, and yet it's far from it. Evolution is a flimsy theory. You see, entropy is the basic law of science. The organization of life moves from complexity to randomness. Our world is winding down, not revving up. And yet for evolution to be true, it has to deny entropy and fly in the face of everything we observe in nature. See, a better explanation of an ordered universe is an orderly creator. And yet why is creation not taught? I'll tell you why. If it were, then we'd have to bow to the creator. This is why folks suppress the truth. If there is no higher authority, then right and wrong are up for grabs. You can make up your own rules. Ungodliness reigns. See, verse 19, people suppress the truth because what may be known of God is manifest in them. For God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. You can't get away from God. He's revealed himself to us, not just in the Bible, but God has revealed himself to mankind in at least two other ways. First, there is the knowledge of God in us, our hearts. Second, God reveals himself to us in the heavens. Look inward and you'll find evidence for God. Look upward and you'll see proof of his eternal power. See, just as animals have migratory instincts, people are born with an intuitive knowledge of God. There is a longing in the heart of every man. There is a dissatisfaction. There is a need that nothing but God can meet. The Creator implants in each of us a homing device, and it never shuts off until we find our way back to Him. Ecclesiastes 3 verse 11 says it well, that God has put eternity in their hearts. A childhood disease left Helen Keller without sight and hearing and speech. And as a young girl, she was taught tirelessly by her dedicated teacher, Ann Sullivan. Ann taught Helen Braille and eventually how to talk But when Anne first told Helen about God, the young girl informed her teacher that she already knew about God. She just didn't know his name. There is an innate knowledge of God in each and every person. You can't run from God. Look inward and you'll find evidence for God. But look upward and you'll behold his glory. 
Psalm 19 verse 1 says it best. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. This is why it's often said nature was the first missionary. During the French Revolution, an atheistic revolutionary bragged to a believing peasant, we're going to pull down all that reminds you of God. The faithful Christian replied, then pull down the stars. Think of it. You and I right now, we're sitting on a ball 25,000 miles in circumference. It weighs 6 septillion 588 sextillion tons, and it hangs supported in the nothingness of space. Planet Earth spins at 1,000 miles per hour while it barrels through space at 1,000 miles a minute. And yet amazingly, your Bible doesn't even fall off your lap. How can that be? I'm sorry, I don't have enough faith to believe that that kind of engineering occurs by chance. A world of order requires an orderly God. Design demands a designer. To the unbiased, God is an obvious reality. The evidence is inescapable. We are without excuse. What Paul is saying is that it's not that we can't believe, it's that we won't believe. We suppress the truth because of our unrighteousness. And then verse 21 he says, Because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful. And here's a warning for all of us. It's possible to know God, even benefit from His blessings, and yet fail to acknowledge the blesser. When life goes well for you, do you take the credit? Or do you chalk it up to good fortune? Or are you thankful to God for His gracious gifts? Paul describes an ungrateful culture. He says, nor were they thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. The Greco-Roman world was steeped in idolatry. People turned birds and beasts and bumblebees into gods. They swapped the glory of the invisible God for corruptible images. And we do the same today. People still worship birds and beasts and bumblebees. Every weekend they do. (laughs) They focus on falcons and bulldogs and yellow jackets. You can turn an idol, you can turn anything into an idol. See, idolatry is giving a greater glory to the creature than to the creator. It's exalting a matter of secondary importance to primary significance in your life. How often do you do that? See, Paul says people became futile in their thoughts, and professing to be wise, they became fools. In other words, smart people stop thinking rationally. You see, once a man rejects the most important thing, which is God, then he tends to fall for anything. It always amazes me how brilliant people refuse to believe in God, yet they read their horoscope or they visit a palm reader. Are you kidding me? College professors mock the Bible and deny Jesus is God, yet seriously believe we've been visited by aliens from other worlds. 
Again, evolution is another example of professing to be wise. They became fools. Despite the absence of missing links, despite the near zero probability of life forming by chance, despite no hard scientific evidence to support their theories, they still believe in the evolution of life. The strength of a prejudice is absolutely amazing. Famed philosopher Malcolm Muggeridge once said, I'm convinced the theory of evolution will be one of the greatest jokes in the history books of the future. Posterity will marvel that so very flimsy and dubious an hypothesis could be accepted with the incredible gullibility that it has. It is sad how in mankind's rebellion and in our suppression of the truth about God, darkness has taken over our minds. And then he says in verse 24, Therefore God also gave them up to uncleanness in the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves. In other words, having worshipped animals, they began to live like animals. You see, over time, a person grows to resemble whatever it is that they worship. See, after teaching kids that they've ascended from apes, why well, be surprised when they monkey around? Teach a child that he or she is nothing but an animal, and he or she will become a party animal. Why well, expect a kid to develop spiritual appetites and moral standards if you tell them all they consist of are glands and hands? In today's world, people don't have a reason why one human whim is any more right or wrong than another. People are driven by lust to dishonor their bodies. They've lost any concept of the sanctity of human sexuality. And they've been given over by God to uncleanness. Who also exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Notice they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Rome was a society that called right wrong and called wrong right. And our society is following in its footsteps. Today, homosexuality is no longer labeled a dysfunction, let alone a sin. It's a protected preference. Abortion isn't murder. It's now a woman's right to choose. Gender isn't our biological reality. It's an assignment based on feelings. A family of one dad and one mom is no longer the optimum environment for raising kids. Now any configuration will do. See, when pleasing and honoring the creature becomes more important than obeying the Creator, then truly the patients have taken over the asylum. And this is what's happened today. To avoid God's authority, we have suppressed His truth. And to convince ourselves we're right, we confuse the truth by normalizing the deviant. We create new woke ethics. See, here's how topsy-turvy the world has become. As Paul puts it, we worship and serve the creature rather than the creator. Throughout the creator, inhumanity becomes a slave to creation. We refuse to pump gas to heat homes for fear of interfering with elk migration in Alaska. Or here in Atlanta, we know about this. The water supply for 6 million people is held hostage by a few snails in a Florida riverbed. It comes up every few years. 
Today, animal rights and environmental concerns have taken precedent over human need. Humanity has lost its uniqueness. Humans are now viewed as a privileged species of animal that oppresses other species. Whereas the Bible teaches us that God created man in his image and in his likeness and has given man dominion over his creation. Nature and animals are meant to serve man's needs, not that we abuse it, but we are to use it. Animals exist to provide us milk and meat and wool. But without God in the Bible, in a pagan world, rather than humans taking charge of nature and using it for our benefit, we become its slave. We end up caring more about animal rights than human welfare. Several years ago, I read where a doctor was anesthetizing cats, putting them to sleep, then shooting them with a BB gun to find ways to help humans traumatized by gunshot wounds. His research was helping injured soldiers. You'd think this would be a noble cause. Yet his experiments were stopped by animal rights activists who thought Snowball and Fluffy were more vital than the men in our military. The truth is, is that people have greater importance than animals. God made it that way. It's a confused society that puts animal life on a par with human life. Every human being bears God's image and has an eternal soul. And then he writes, verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to vile passions. Now three times in these verses, 24, 26, and verse 28, Paul tells us God gave them up or God gave them over. See, one way that God judges sinners is by letting them chase their sin with an unbridled passion. People bent on sinning are allowed to pursue their sin and reap its consequences. It's a just punishment. In other words, the person gets what they've asked for. And in the remainder of chapter 1, Paul tells us how to know that God has subjected a society to such a judgment. Like indicators on a dashboard in your car. There are certain things that light up. And they let us know the car has a problem. Well, Paul's going to list 24 cultural indicators that alert us that society has gone off the rails, that our society is in deep trouble. And the first indicator of such a society is the acceptance and the legitimization of homosexuality. Listen to the next two verses, verse 26. For even their women exchange the natural use for what is against nature. When it comes to sexual deviance, women are usually less prone to it than men. But in Rome, even the women were behaving in unnatural ways. And then verse 27, Likewise also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another, men with men committing what is shameful and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. Debased means cast away or rejected. God turned them over to their sin. Now before I go further, 
Let me reiterate, homosexuality is the first of 24 indicators that a culture has suppressed and confused and transgressed God's truth. And God has given them over to its consequences. But verse 29 also adds sexual immorality to the list. And this means that God sees all sexual sin, heterosexual and homosexual, as a threat to the health of a society. See, all humans are born in sin. And thus, we're born twisted in our sexual orientation. Whether your attraction is homosexual or heterosexual, if you've ever lusted sexually for a person who was not your spouse, you violated God's design. God made us for marriage. The only sexual relationships sanctioned by God are those that are within the bounds of heterosexual marriage. See, too many Christians today, they turn up their nose at gay people and they act holier than thou while they excuse their own pornography or ignore their single friends who are living together or winking at their buddies who are cheating on their spouses. Let me be clear. Homosexuality is just one indicator that a culture is in trouble with God. But it is an indicator. Paul puts it here in this list. In fact, verses 26 and 27, it's the only indicator in this list that he actually takes time to describe. Now understand, a relationship with God requires that you accept God's rules. Makes sense, doesn't it? If you want to have, if I want to have a relationship with me, I have to come on your terms. If you want to have a relationship with God, you have to accept God's terms. You can't play a game if you reject its rules. No, hey, I can play basketball and I can violate the rules. I can foul an opponent, but I'm still in the game. I have to admit my violation. I have maybe raise my hand, own my sin, my violation. I'm allowed to break the rules as long as I admit that I've broken them. And I agree that there are rules in the first place. But if I deny the rules or if I reject them, then I'm not playing the game. And so it is with God. A repentant mind might sin, but it admits the violation and it desires to change. Whereas a debased or castaway mind sins yet it refuses to admit that there's such a thing as sin or rejects God's definition of it. If that's the case, you're not in the game or in a relationship with God. And thus, the ultimate destiny for those who suppress God's truth is God stops working with them. He ceases to convict them and woo them. He gives them up to their own lies. A person who denies God's rules participates in sinful behavior without the slightest twinge of guilt. A debased mind even demands that you approve of their sin. They become militant in their quest for legitimacy. And this describes today's homosexual community. LGBTQ advocates are not content to practice their behaviors privately. They want to socialize society especially our youth, to view homosexuality as a legitimate and even desired lifestyle. Even legal discrimination isn't isn't enough. 
Advocates want a privileged status. They want to force all of society to applaud their choices. They've justified their rejection of God's order, and we're told here that God has given them up. In these two verses, verses 26 and 27, Paul tells us four truths about homosexuality. One, it's not natural. Two, it's not normal. Three, it's not noble. And four, it's not neutral. Now, first, it's not natural. Paul says that both women and men left the natural use of the opposite sex to lust after those of the same sex. Now, I don't want to be crass or crude, but a quick peek at the male and female genitalia, and it reveals a natural anatomical fit. When men and women mate, their parts connect. There is a natural congruity that doesn't exist in same-sex unions. And why? The Bible teaches that God created gender. That men are designed sexually for women, just as women are tailored sexually for men. Heterosexuality was dictated in the beginning by God. It's how he intended for husbands and wives to function sexually. The research often supported or cited to support the theory that people are born homosexuals is seriously flawed. For 25 years, Dr. Robert Cronemeyer, he worked with gay people, and he concluded this, with rare exceptions, homosexuality is neither inherited nor a result of some glandular disturbance or the scrambling of genes or chromosomes. Homosexuals are made, not born. I firmly believe homosexuality is a learned response to early painful experiences. Thus, it can be unlearned. Yet, for the sake of argument, let's just say that what if it were proven that a gay gene actually existed? Does that mean that we should condone and legitimize homosexual behavior? If a person was biologically disposed to alcoholism or to depression, should we ignore the disorder? Or should we try to treat the person if we can? Try to help them? Or if a person is prone to violence, should we legitimize all violence? Well, surely not. The point is, if the Bible is God's word, and it says this is not natural, then this is a behavior that should be avoided. And if we can help a person overcome it, then we should. Well, homosexuality is not natural, but it's also not normal. See, I believe that there are two roots from which homosexual behavior stems. First is gender attachment. Through abuse or neglect, people at early ages can develop abnormal psychological attractions. And we should show sympathy and have empathy towards such people. This is the homosexual who may not understand why he or she feels the way they do. But the homosexual that Paul is describing in Romans chapter 1, we're told, burns in his lust. See, this is a different situation. Here is someone who is eaten up with desire. You see, humans can get so bored with heterosexual experience, and in a quest for greater thrills, they flirt with a taboo. They swing back and forth. This is Madonna and Britney Spears pushing the boundaries at the MTV Music Awards with their infamous on-stage kiss. 
You know, it's interesting, the last line of Madonna's song that night, we're bored with the concept of right and wrong. That's what was going on in Rome. This is the Katy Perry, I kissed a girl type of phenomena. This is what was happening in the bathhouses of ancient Rome. The brothels no longer satisfied the appetites, and so bored Romans took an anything-goes sexuality. Paul says homosexuality is not natural, it's not normal, and it's not noble. Paul writes, men with men committing what is shameful. The Greek translation of the word shameful is the word eschemosani, sani, eschemosani, I'm guessing. But it means against the schematic. A is against, scheme is the schematic. It's against the schematic or against the design. See, God assigned to human sexuality a noble purpose that he doesn't want violated. Ephesians 5 teaches us that heterosexual marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. This is important to God. This is dear to his heart. That he wants the man relating to the woman as Christ relates to the church and the woman relating to to her husband as the church relates to Christ. And yet homosexuality distorts this picture. It masculinizes the female and it feminizes the male. It disrupts God's roles. And then finally, God says homosexuality is not neutral. These acts come with a punishment. He says, receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. Don't be naive. You can't buck God and nature and not pay the piper. Giving into homosexuality takes a toll, a seared conscience, depression, guilt, confusion, insecurities, not to mention the health dangers. 77% of AIDS victims are homosexual. Substance abuse, even suicide, occur more frequently among homosexuals. It's sad. It's tragic. Yet don't misunderstand. Paul isn't saying that homosexuals are not loved by God. They are. And he's certainly not saying that Jesus didn't die to set them free and give their life meaning. He did. And Jesus never said that a gay person has to become straight before he or she can be saved. No, God takes all sinners just as we are. And then he transforms us once he has us into the likeness of his son. Remember, we are all born with a twisted sexual orientation that God alone can untwist. Yes, homosexuality is not natural. It's not normal. It's not noble. And it's not neutral. But it is forgivable. For Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 to the Corinthians, he says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites will inherit the kingdom of God. But then he adds, And such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. I love that phrase. Such were some of you, but no longer. There were former homosexuals in Corinth who had been set free and had been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Rather than leave them in that state, the gospel had set them free. And because of God's grace, 
they found a new identity in Christ. But there are other indicators that a society has drifted from God. Verse 29 presents a long list. He says, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, haters of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. When you see these things, realize that the culture has gone off the rails. And let me run through this list quickly. Sexual immorality. The Greek term is pornea, from which we get our word pornography. Pornea applied to all forms of illicit sexual arousal and activity. Heterosexual as well as homosexual. He also mentions wickedness. In the original, it means to work or toil at wickedness. Covetousness is greed. It's the itch for more. Maliciousness is the desire to do physical harm to another person. Strife is the tendency to argue for the sake of arguing. Boy, are we plagued with that today. Backbiters are those who inflict wounds with their words or with their Twitter messages. Inventors of evil things. These are folks who dream up ways to push God's boundaries. Disobedient to parents. The disrespect for authority in our culture is epidemic. Undiscerning is the failure to learn. It's being unteachable. Untrustworthy is when people no longer keep their promises. And then unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. It was said of Rome how pitiless she was. Amid all the ruins of her cities, we find no hospital or orphanage in an age that made many orphans. Rome had no conscience. She was a lustful, devouring beast, made more bestial by her intelligence and splendor. The Romans lacked compassion. The lack of compassion is an indicator that a society has been turned over to its sin. And then verse 32 who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such sin, such things, are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. And Paul saves the worst indictment for last, in my opinion. Think of verse 32 the next time you sit down to watch an ungodly or an unrighteous movie. Oh, you may not cheat on your spouse, but do you cheer on the actor who does? You may not take God's name in vain, but do you watch movies that do it frequently? Do we give passive approval to what God hates? That's what he condemns here. It's called guilt by association, and we need to repent. Now, let me close chapter 1 with this. This is going to be back a little bit beyond most of you probably, but do you remember when pay phones and operators were a thing? Pay phones and operators? Well, back in the day, a husband called his wife. When he hung up, the phone rang back. It was the operator. Sir, I thought you'd just like to know that right after you hung up, your wife said she loved you. What a nice gesture is that? 
And this is how we should close Romans chapter 1. For though our society has hung up on God, God keeps calling us. God wants us to know He loves us. And if we repent, He'll forgive us. The gospel of Christ is still in effect and how powerful it is. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most powerful change agent on the planet. It is the power of God to those who believe. Father, we thank you.